Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Dan Pfeiffer. On today's show, the Republican Party is once again in disarray thanks to Donald Trump. Democratic governors are ending COVID restrictions as Omicron recedes. And our old friend David Axelrod will be here to talk about Democrats' midterm strategy. We're all recording from the University of Chicago together on the 15th anniversary of the day that Barack Obama announced his presidential campaign in Springfield, Illinois, which makes us old, Dan. <laughs> when Alyssa told me it was 15 years, I was 100% positive she had screwed the math up, but no. It is 15, 15 years. Nice to be in Chicago, though. I know. Nice a to play- be recording with you in person. Nice to be in Chicago, a place that is most definitely not our homes. Dan's first reaction when we sat down together in the studio was, Wow, it feels weird sitting close to you. (laughs) I tested negative. Don't worry. Before we start, check out the latest episode of Pod Save the World, where Ben talks to Estonia's Prime Minister Kaha Kalas about her views on Ukraine and what it's like to be a NATO ally bordering Russia. I'm sure not great. Uh, (laughs) New episodes of Pod Save the World drop every Wednesday. Also check out this week's Pod Save the People, where Diara interviews Dustin Gibson about his roots, disability justice work, and recent Justice Rising Award from the Open Society Foundation's New episodes drop every Tuesday. All right, let's get to the news. So on Tuesday's pod, uh, we talked about how the RNC's decision to pass a formal censure of Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger that called the January 6th insurrection legitimate political discourse wasn't just a horrific endorsement of violence, but pretty bad politics. Uh, And it seems like at least some Republicans now agree. (laughs) One former RNC official told the New York Times, Quote, it doesn't take David Axelrod or Karl Rove to figure out that it wasn't the politically smart thing to do. (laughs) I had to bring that up since we have Axon today. Um, More than 140 Republican leaders and former officials issued a joint statement condemning the RNC for the censure. A bunch of Republican senators spoke out, including Mitch McConnell, who said this. The issue is whether or not the RNC should be sort of singling out members of our party who may have different views from the majority. That's not the job of the RNC. Now, obviously, most of the uh, MAGA chuds in Congress are still on board with the uh, the party endorsing political violence. Kevin McCarthy literally ran away from a reporter when he was asked about this. Uh, and Donald Trump, of course, released a statement attacking McConnell. But what do you think is going on here with Mitch and some of these other Republicans who are condemning this? I think they believe, and I think for a very good reason, that they are on a glide path to winning the House and possibly the Senate. And the only thing that can get in their way is reminding voters who they are. And it's an, and you don't, you don't, in that situation, you don't want an unforced error. And the Republican Party National Committee passing a formal resolution sanctioning political violence is the textbook definition of an unforced error. And so they're, tr- <laughs> they're trying to like hive yeah, this. That's off. a bad one. <laughs> they're trying to like hive it off. So it's like, oh, it's this extreme faction. Like it's the Freedom Caucus or it's, some yahoos on Fox News as opposed to the Republican Party itself, the body which writes the rules, does the platform, decides how the primaries are run. And so it's sort of a, it's a desperate attempt to at distance, but it's an attempt to at distance. I saw um, a Representative Mike McCall, who's the ranking member on Foreign Affairs, talk to Martha Raddatz about this. And he's like, well, I'm not a member of the Republican National Committee. <laughs> really? We're going to try that? Yes. No, you're, you're a Republican in Congress, but you, I have no – what's the RNC? What, what is does that, that stand for? What is that? No, I mean, I think it's interesting to see the split because – and also the the pull of right-wing media on these people also because Ted Cruz, like, criticized Mitch McConnell over his statement and said, oh, we shouldn't call it an armed insurrection. That's what the Democrats call it. This is Ted Cruz still smarting from his gaffe 
where he got called out on Tucker Carlson show for calling it domestic terrorism. Yeah. So, I mean, it is you still have a bunch of them that feel like they need to endorse this. But I do think it's the other thing that's interesting about this is like when it happened and we were talking about it on Tuesday, you know, every time the Republican Party does something crazy, your first instinct is, well, maybe no one's going to care. Maybe this maybe we're beyond politics now. But clearly, the party thinks this is awful, or at least the, a lot of party leaders like McConnell. Like, they don't think it's good politics. They right. think people are going to care about this. That's an important distinction is I don't think they think it's awful because, like, morally endorsing political violence is awful. I don't think they give a shit about that. I think they think it's bad politics. Yes. But it should remind all – it's a good lesson for all of us that some things are still bad politics. <laughs> yes. Yes. If it, if it was – Things good, still matter. If it was good politics, they would be selling legitimate discourse T-shirts on the RNC website. <laughs> Uh, of course, we're also learning more about what Trump thought about the violent insurrection, particularly the chance about assassinating his vice president. Here's a clip. So that was just a figure of speech, apparently, if you were former President Trump. Trump telling New York Times reporter Jeremy Peters, quote, I think it was an expression. I don't think they would have ever thought of doing it. You know the expression. Boy, I'm so excited to be here. I just want to hang Mike Pence. <laughs> I think it's... So it's, it's an expression people say. I think it's so funny because the most obvious way to try to explain this away is to say that they what they meant to say was they want to hang with Mike Pence. But that is just so Thank holy. you for saying that because we have been trying to make that a title of yeah. Hot Save America for a little while. And now I feel like it's it's warranted yes, now. But it's just simply not believable that anyone would ever want to hang with Mike Pence. So they had to go with something else. Hanging with Mike Pence. We were saying hang with. So this is the first time, sadly, this year the Republicans have been on the defensive. We're now on day six of this story. Like, what lessons should Democrats draw from their predicament here? I think there are two. One is a cardinal rule of politics, which is you want to do everything you possibly can to focus the political discussion on issues that unite your base and divide theirs. And that is because, I mean, one, you just, you it is in your interest to have your opponents divided. But also that's how media works, right? For all the talk about ideological bias, whatever else, the primary bias in media is conflict. And so if Republicans are fighting each other, that is going to get coverage. And it's going to send the media to go ask more Republicans to respond to the criticism. So it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. We know this because it's called what every reporter did for all of 2021 about Democrats. Right. The second part of it it, that I think matters is it shows that when we go on offense, when Republicans make mistakes, we can actually drive a narrative. And everyone was talking about this. A bunch of ads came out. People were pushing it. And we we didn't simply rely on the media to do all of the work. Democrats actually really pushed on this. And we had some stuff. I was going to ask about that because I have not seen – I thought that the media has been pushing on this the whole time. And I haven't really heard a lot of Democrats talk about it. But I have also been not – yeah, super I mean, close to the, the media, I'm not saying the media has not done a good job on this, but the, all the stuff that January 6th, like it's not an, it's not a, I think, an accident that there have been all of these revelations about the findings of the January 6th commission thus far in the last week. Right. Right. Whether it's the Trump phone logs some other things we're going to talk about, it's become pretty clear that they are using this, the context of this story to push the January 6th narrative forward. And I think that's smart and good. Oh, yeah. Uh, so the committee is. Yeah. Have like, what about the political side of the Democratic Party? Like, have there been a bunch of ads about this? There, there ha- there like, ha- Biden hasn't said anything about Biden, it yet. Biden has not, to my knowledge. I haven't checked in on the White House briefing recently. Same. Uh, so I don't know whether that's- I imagine someone up. had to have asked Jen about this. Yeah, I'm, well, we should probably know this. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure someone told us what it was and we just didn't remember. <laughs> but 
it has not been the centerpiece, but there have been people pushing and there ha- there have been ads the the Lincoln Project did an ad mm-hmm. that like in their sort of rapid fire way they came out, I think were the day of or the day after. There have been uh the super PACs have said they're gonna use it um in the committees. There was a report this morning. So people are pushing on it and they see the opportunity here. It's just a question of whether we can be creative enough to keep it going beyond this week. I would have a line about it in the State of the Union. Yeah. Like I wouldn't be uh, you have to be careful because it's the State of the Union and you're not going to have Joe Biden up there being like, oh, you endorse political violence. But I would say that if, I, if he, it, I, I assume at some point being in the Capitol giving that speech, he will talk about January 6th. He gave a very forceful speech about it on the anniversary. I would say something about um, and that was political violence and no party should ever endorse that. And then watch. I do the line. So that obviously all the Democrats stand up and then someone like Mitch McConnell, who spoke out against it, would have to stand up yep. and, and, then, and applaud or and sit. then watch the assholes in the party who uh, agree with it sit down and be quiet And then about use it. that video to make the yep. point come out of it. Now, am I right in saying that there will only be 25 people there? Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I, I did see that somewhere. Which is like less than last year during COVID. What? what why are we? I, I, I think I that's what like Kevin McCarthy said about Nancy Pelosi. I think she has not. Formally, okay. well, well, so I, we'll I, see. I hope they don't do that. Twenty-five people, yeah, that's that's weird. How do you make the? We talked a little bit about this on Tuesday, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Like, how do you make the Republican Party's embrace of political violence an issue that moves people when most voters either a may not have paid attention to this or b are thinking, you know, that's an issue in politics. That was in the past. It was January 6th. I'm, I care about inflation. I care about COVID, all that kind of stuff. I think there are two, if you step back from this, I think we have to sort of reframe how we think about this. Like if you look at polls today, there is definitely not an argument for making this a centerpiece of our message. I also think it is not politicians. The politicians should not look at polls today and talk about what people care about today. We should pick the issues that we believe we want to be of highest salience on Election Day and then spend the next several months making those highest salience. Immigration was not top of mind in 2016. Donald Trump made it top of mind and he won because of it. So if you look at this issue and you look at Republican sanctioning political violence, you look at Trump promising pardons, these are all incredibly unpopular positions. For Even for as many Republicans as who believe the big lie or want to tell themselves or pollsters they believe the big lie, vast majorities of Republicans do not support what happened on January 6th. They do not support pardons for these people, the independents who have departed Democrats even more strongly. And so in an ideal world, people are not thinking about inflation on Election Day. They're thinking about this. And so what can we do to make it top of mind? Now, the other part of this is we I think we create this false binary choice between democracy and process issues or January 6th or whatever else and quote unquote kitchen table issues. Yeah. We're running a campaign against Republicans. Our main the main point here is we have to convince voters that Republicans should not be in control of anything. And I don't know how you run that campaign without pointing out that they have a dangerous, unhinged leader who wants to run for president again, and the party has officially sanctioned political violence. They have an they have an agenda that's based on vengeance, and they have sanctioned political violence. If and so like it goes back to part of the narrative that um, we sort of developed about Trump in 2020, which is it's chaos. Do you want chaos to reign if these people are in power? They're going to go after their enemies. They've already sanctioned political violence. You could see instability and chaos in the streets with these people. I mean, I was even thinking 
Have you been following this Canadian trucker thing? Oh, yes. I, I actually accidentally stumbled on Fox News. Uh, Fox has been covering the Canadian truckers that, that, that these truckers are protesting um, vaccine mandates in Canada. And so all these trucks are lined up in Ottawa trying to, like, you know, block traffic and everything else. And I was reading that there's been a movement in the United States from some right wing groups to start doing the same thing. The Department of Homeland Security warned that it could interfere with the State of the Union, the Super Bowl. And that's just one issue where you're like, people, I don't need to look at a poll. Most people in this country are not going to want that. <laughs> They're not going to want huge trucks parked in their streets to uh, because the Republican Party is pissed about vaccine mandates. However you feel about vaccine mandates. Which is a issue that has majority strong majority support. So that's the kind of thing that like, I think framing, starting to frame the Republican Party as these people are chaotic and out of control and have endorsed political violence. And if you put them back in power, like there's going to be some real, it's going to affect your life. And if you think about the three legs of the coalition that gave one for Democrats in 18 and 20, it's our base turning out incredibly high rate. It is people who got engaged in politics for the first time because of the crisis that was Trump and people who switched sides because of Trump. Mm-hmm. independents, Republicans, people going back and forth in parties, Romney voters, all those people. To win, we have to get those people back. And reminding people that the Republican Party is not some generic party with bad positions on inflation or taxes, that they are a deeply dangerous party. And I think so, how do you square the circle between, because you do have to talk, like the inflation is in people's lives. You have to talk about it in a way. You have to talk about the pandemic. And I think one way to do it is to frame the Republicans and their extreme positions and that they are a force of division that is blocking progress on issues that the vast majority of Americans care about. Yeah. Minimum wage, dealing with inflation, um, mass, you know, masks, which we'll talk about later, but common sense vaccines, common sense measures around the pandemic is to frame the Republicans as division. Because if you look at polling, one of the things that has really hurt Biden, I mean, the main things are the conditions on the ground, the pandemic, et cetera, but he ran on this promise of unity. And you look at America and it doesn't seem very unified right now. And Pew did a battery of issues looking at, um, you know, where people have lost the most confidence in Biden over the last year. And the, the issue where he is, he is faring the worst is uniting the country. And one way, like he can't, we know he can't unite, but one thing he can do is point out the people who are dividing it. And I think point out who's dividing it, point out the dangerousness of that division and point out how that division impacts regular people's lives is a way somewhere in there is a message that could be very compelling for 2022. Yeah, we've talked about this before, but there is a there's a difference between running a campaign where you're saying like I I'm going to unify the country and I have the power to like work with Republicans and yeah. bring them over to my side, which yeah, not, hasn't oh, worked out so don't, well. Don't erase the biff, which, my friend. Many of, yeah, exactly. Well, no, that that is one yeah. proof point on that. But um, many of us knew at the time, Biden probably oversold that a little bit because of his Senate past. Um, but I do think the message about, look, most of this country or, or big majorities in this country agree on X, Y, and Z issues. And there's an extreme faction standing in yeah. the way. So we have to defeat them and elect people who are going to work together to solve these problems is a powerful message and actually much more realistic than saying, I'm going to get Mitch McConnell to work with me. I mean, we often like sort of harass Democrats about, don't talk about process, don't talk about process, don't talk about polls. But there is some real social science and political theory behind pointing out over and over and over again that what we want is the, ma- is the majority position in this country. It is social proof, right? We want to use that 
to bring people on board. And it also helps hive off that other side as being part of this out-of-touch minority. Uh, where do you think Donald Trump's document retention policy fits into this midterm strategy? Uh, the New York <laughs> Times reported on Wednesday that there was classified information contained in the 15 boxes of official White House documents that Trump definitely shouldn't have taken with him to Mar-a-Lago. He has since returned them. And just before we started recording, according to uh, Maggie Haberman's soon-to-be-released book, he also literally flushed <laughs> documents down the toilet. Okay. I got a lot of questions. Uh, me too. I don't, I don't We should have had Maggie here to answer them. <laughs> so question one is, was he flushing them down the toilet like a drug dealer in a movie with the cops at the door? Like he knows now. Who was at the door? Like, like Mueller the was archi- outside? The archivist. The archivist. <laughs> They're like, National Archives, it's let like, us in. It's like the Mueller bobblehead comes to life and is outside the, like, was the, uh, was the Supreme Court marshal there yeah. in the <laughs> impeachment eagle ready to take him away? <laughs> well, it's, well, you know, there are all those stories about how he would rip them up and put them in the trash and then staff would have to tape them back together. So maybe he read about that and figured the only way he could end run the archivist was to flush down the toilet. Does he not know that the NSC has shredders, that there's burn <laughs> bags that they come around I mean, with? He, is he literally wiping his ass with them? Like, is that what's happening? That's terrible. I know. We could probably take that Leave out. that in there. Leave it in. But I, the other thing I'd say is like, it's easy to laugh about this, but... It's not like document retention protocols have ever played a large and decisive role in elections. I know, I know. But I, I see all this too, and I'm like, this is infuriating. The hypocrisy is, of course, stunning, as it always is. But um, it's like a it's like a flashing light to me that's like, trap, Democrats, trap. <laughs> Do not go down the rabbit hole of Donald Trump's document retention policy problems. Look, should he be investigated for this? Yes, of course. And he All is the, being. And it, they like, recommended well, the be. archivist, yeah, the archivist told the Justice Department, hey, uh, this is well, probably not legal. <laughs> you guys should look into it. It is like what happened to Sandy Berger. Yeah. For those of you too young to remember, he was the uh, national security advisor for Bill Clinton. I believe he stuffed some classified information in his socks and and walked out of the White House. Was it his socks? Something like I think I it was know. socks. Rhodes will know this. Um, but he got in some trouble. Did he not have pockets? Like what? I, I don't know what was happening. <laughs> but he he knew enough not to. I guess he should have flushed it down the toilet. <laughs> that's right. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a big no no. Now the the trouble with Trump is as president, of course, you have the power to declassify anything. So. Um, it's a, probably a hard case to bring against him because he could always say, well, I was, decla- I was declassified by my power as Trump. Now, you can't declassify after you've become president. So Yeah, so when did those documents leave? Did they, was it before noon? Again, we could all get down. I do not know how. Look, the relevant committees and jurisdictions should look into this. I do not know, think this is, a lot of, this is something that we all should spend a lot of time on. I think we could tuck this under your chaos theory. Yeah, yeah. Like, is this what we need? Do we right, need this we're going to go back, yeah. We had Hillary's emails for a year. Now we got this guy's document retention policy. He's flushing things down the toilet. He's saying, hey, Mike Pence is just an expression. They're endorsing political violence because they want to get in good with him. Like, this is what you want again for another four years? I do think that's a powerful argument. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. 
Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Uh, Let's talk about the quickly receding Omicron wave and what the next stage of pandemic life is starting to look like. Uh, Some of the biggest, bluest states and most liberal governors are announcing the end of universal mask mandates, including California, New York, Illinois, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Connecticut, Oregon, today Nevada. On Tuesday, Dr. Fauci said that even though he believes we're not going to eradicate this virus, we're, quote, heading out of the full-blown pandemic phase and that he hopes all COVID restrictions will soon be a thing of the past. But CDC Director Rochelle Walensky said on Wednesday that while her agency is working towards new mask guidance and encouraged by the current trends, high hospitalizations and deaths in some parts of the country mean, quote, we are not there yet, which is a message that was echoed by Jen Psaki during her White House briefing. We are internally discussing, of course, um, what it looks like to be in the phase uh, of the fight against uh, the COVID pandemic, where it is not disrupting everyone's daily lives, where uh, people are moving on and living, um, you know, lives free of hopefully masks at some point, and um, many of the restrictions that we've all been living through uh, over the past two years. But as a the federal government, we have the responsibility to rely on data, on science, on the medical experts. That's something the president committed to during the campaign. They committed, they confirmed during this briefing. They're continuing to evaluate, and there's ongoing discussions and work happening internally. Dan, why do you think all these Democratic governors are lifting the mask mandates right now? Has has the virus and the science changed? Has the politics changed? Is it both? It's both. Right. I mean, as you point out, cases are receding. They're receding quickly. The states we're talking about are ones with some of the highest vaccination rates in the country. I think when we we're going to talk about the politics, this political podcast, we have to do that. But I think the using the term politics somewhat cheapens what's happening here because these are guidelines that are only enforced by broad consent. Right. There are not cops going around enforcing mass mandates, vaccine mandates, and mass mandates indoors are being enforced by baristas, hostesses, store clerks, people who our society won't even pay a livable wage to. Mm-hmm. So it's only going to work as long as the vast majority of people think it makes sense. Yeah. And people's positions on this have changed as Omicron has hit and they've gotten frustrated. And we have to adjust our rules to create some sort of as safe as humanly possible for as many people as possible release valve to ensure that we can continue to do the smart things and there's not a broad scale rebellion against any and all restrictions, even the ones that still make sense. I also think let's put the politics entirely aside for a second and just talk about the science on this. So this debate between the Democratic governors that are doing this now and and the CDC, which really when you listen to Walensky and especially when you listen to Fauci, like this is sort of, sort of a short-term problem right now. Like in by March, end of March at the latest, I, I, I guarantee CDC will be here as well, partly because the numbers – eventually will come down to match the CDCs. 
um, metrics. But the thing to know about the CDC's metrics is, you know, they qualify a county as low or moderate transmission, which is what you need to get rid of the mask mandate, just using case numbers and test positivity. Two metrics that stopped being really useful predictors of hospitalizations and death when we had variants and then when we had vaccines. So they sort of have old metrics, but now they're trying to figure out new metrics. Like just in LA County, like we still have an indoor mask mandate, even though California is lifting theirs. But our health director already said that like for outdoor events, which if you have big mega events, you have to mask in LA, um, they're going to change the metrics to hospitalizations over seven days as opposed to cases and test positivity because cases and test positivity don't really tell you a lot anymore about the real danger of the virus since we're in a Omicron world with a lot of vaccination. So the CDC governor thing, I think, is temporary. But I do think, like, long term, like, people should – I don't think people are going to feel very comforted hearing that, like, well, the politics changed, so now I'm not going to be safe anymore. But I don't think you need to feel that way. <laughs> like, I get the fear and anxiety that still exists out there. Like, you and I still have unvaccinated children. Like, I, I canceled holiday plans to not put Charlie on a plane. Like, we've been navigating this, too. Like, it's, it's tough. But, like, the science has changed. <laughs> and the science has changed because the virus has changed and because we have vaccines. Like, the bad news here is, as Dr. Fauci said this week, like, we will never eradicate this virus. And I think that's something that people skip over now. Like, the scientific consensus right now is that COVID-19 will always be in circulation, even after Omicron is over. It will always be a threat. And that's no matter how much vaccinating, masking, testing we do. It will always be here. And, like, the whole idea about COVID zero, it's, like, not supported by scientific fact. It's a fantasy. But the good news is, if you are vaccinated and boosted, you are protected against severe disease and death. How protected? The latest CDC data shows that only one out of every one million boosted Americans have died of COVID. One out of a million. What about long COVID, you might ask? The most comprehensive and precise study to date on vaccination and long COVID from researchers in Israel found that, quote, vaccinated people were no more likely to report symptoms of long COVID than people who've never had COVID at all. I repeat, vaccinated people were no more likely to report symptoms of long COVID than people who'd never caught COVID at all. Now, maybe you're thinking, that's all well and good. I still don't want to get sick. Maybe you are immunocompromised. Maybe you live with someone who's immunocompromised or someone who's otherwise vulnerable. Maybe you just don't want to get sick. Getting sick sucks. The good news there is, if you wear an N95 or a K95 mask, even if no one else around you is wearing one, you are still protected from COVID. One-way masking works Dr. Joseph Allen, who's a COVID and ventilation expert at the Harvard School of Public Health, he knows this stuff. Uh, this was his quote to The Atlantic, and he said it again in The Washington Post. If you are vaccinated, boosted, and wearing a well-fitted N95 or similar mask indoors, your risk is extremely low. I mean, there's not much else in life that would have as low a risk as that. So that's pretty – now, again, that's not a cloth mask. Got to get your N95 or your K95. Got to make sure it's fitting, fitted well. But, like, I do think – some of this conversation around mask mandates is a conversation that's based on a situation that we had in 2020 when there were no vaccines and when we weren't dealing with the variants that we're dealing with now. There, there's my piece that I had to say on that. <laughs> I just, I, but, but I, under, like, I understand the fear and anxiety that's out there because first of all, there's been a lot of mixed messaging and also partly that's the fault of the, the CDC, but also the, it's like a whole new pandemic. 
You know, like once we had vaccines and once Delta hit and then Omicron hit, like things changed pretty rapidly. And I don't think everyone caught up. And that's not the fault of everyone. Like everyone's just been going through it. But like we should feel some comfort from the science now. I mean, this is where it's going to be different in all different parts of the country, depending on vaccination rates. But it's also where schools and workplace policies matter a lot, because even if you say to me, you're vaxxed, you're boosted, if you get COVID, it is like it is overwhelmingly likely to be relatively mild compared to what we feared a year or two ago. But still, the complications, it's not like getting a bad cold, because if I get a bad cold, my daughter's preschool doesn't shut down, right? right? Or I don't have to quarantine away from my family or all these other things. And so we have to right size everything to where we are now. And look, if we get a new variant, a year from now or two years from now, we're going to have to change every. We have to change things again, depending on what it looks like. This is the most important thing because you can see another variant coming in six months. That's uh, God forbid, but like if it's worse than Omicron or it's more uh, virulent, like Delta was, then you know everyone's going to be like, "Why did they drop the mask mandates? That was a huge mistake." No, if things change, if the virus changes again, we have to be ready to change with it. But if you're not going to drop a mask mandate, When Omicron recedes, and again, we can quibble over exactly when we're saying that it's fully receded. It's going to happen differently in different parts of the country. But once it fully recedes, if you're not willing to drop a mask mandate then, then you have to answer the question, when are you actually willing to drop the mask mandate? Because it's going to be here forever. (laughs) You know, like we, the, the mask mandate in LA was still in place before Omicron hit, and we had very low levels of virus there, but it wasn't low enough to hit the CDC threshold. So the real question is, are we going to have a mask mandate forever? And if not, what are the metrics for that? And if after a huge wave recedes, where now there's a ton of immunity in the population, both because of vaccines and because, unfortunately, a lot of people are infected, like that seems to be the best time. I don't know when else you would lift the mask mandate. Now, Republicans, many of whom have spent the last few years waging a a war against life-saving vaccines and other COVID restrictions, they're now crying hypocrisy looking to put Democrats in the defensive over this issue. This week, Stacey Abrams came under fire for posing maskless in a photo with masked children. She had only taken off her mask to give a speech, but she apologized nonetheless. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti got in trouble for taking a maskless photo with Magic Johnson at the NFC Championship, especially because he said that during the picture, he was, quote, literally holding his breath for two seconds. (laughs) Lots of very funny uh, didn't inhale jokes on Twitter after that. Um, what do you think about this? Like, how are Democrats the ones ending up on the defensive over this? And, and how do you handle this if you're a Democratic politician? I, mean, I think there's a simple rule, which is if you are a elected official, you should abide by the guidelines you put in place. Right. It's very simple. Right. No matter what. I mean, it's not even just COVID related. It's just in general, if you pass a law that says you have to wear a seatbelt, wear a seatbelt. Right. So and then if you get caught making a mistake and people do make mistakes, don't come up with a really stupid excuse claiming to not be exhaling or inhaling during that period of time. Like that is just stupid. More broadly, you know, and these politicians could all use better staff work, I think. But more broadly, we have to go on offense. We are constantly a defensive crouch is our natural state of being as a Democratic Party. And we have to go on offense. How is it possible that people like Stacey Abrams are on the defensive when the governor of that fucking state, who is her most likely opponent, has been spreading misinformation about vaccines, lying about the severity of the of the virus, and particularly in the early on before people were vaccinated, putting in place deeply irresponsible positions not supported by science. We have to go on offense. And, see, and I mean, this is not to pick on Stacey Abrams. She went on very aggressive offense when she was on Pots America last week about this very point. But as a party, we have to call out 
not the people necessarily who are unvaccinated themselves, the politicians and the media people who are lying to them about the vaccine. The vaccines are the greatest scientific miracle of our lifetime. And the Biden administration has rolled them out in a really efficient way. And there would be even more people vaccinated right now if it wasn't for the Republicans waging a war against vaccines and spreading so much disinformation or, or at least cozying up to people who are spreading disinformation about this. And we seem to have like forgotten that, you know, like these vaccines, the fact that like I know that initially before Delta and Omicron, it was like, well, the vaccines protect against all infection. That's great. Very few vaccines actually do that. The flu vaccine certainly doesn't do that. But they have saved hundreds of thousands of lives. And Democrats should be on the offense about that and be proud of that and talk about that all the time and not sit there and be like and get into like a whole argument about masking and testing and all the other kind of stuff. Like the, I do think that the Biden administration was on strongest footing. And I know there's like a problem with just calling it the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Right. We're all going through this. But when the Biden administration was talking about the life saving power of the vaccines and how good they were. And, and and hitting back against people who were spreading disinformation about the vaccines. That's when they were also on the strongest political footing. And I will say that, like, not much has changed about the virus. I mean, they can still have that message today. That message is still available to them. And I think that, like, as we're seeing these universal mask mandates drop, like, that's going to be the, the best political place for the Democrats to be. Okay. When we come back, we will talk to our old friend David Axelrod about politics. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com. Enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Beyonce, Katanji Brown-Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. With us today, the director of the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, co-host of Hacks on Tap, former senior advisor to Barack Obama, and our good friend and mentor, David Axelrod. I've got a few more titles. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, this was in I'm your old, contract. Man. I had to I'm all of these. Yes. <laughs> yes. What's up? I don't up? need an introduction, but I demand one. Uh, how are you guys? So good to see you. And it's good to be here with you in Chicago. In um, person. At the University of Chicago. On an auspicious day. 
Yeah, I know. We're going to talk about that, too. Um, we were just talking about uh, what's been in the news, uh, specifically the uh, split between the Biden administration and these Democratic governors over lifting mask mandates. What's your take on that whole situation? Well, I'll tell you what. This whole thing has been so hard. I, I mean, in fairness, I think the administration made it harder because their communications on it has been messed up. And, you know, the CDC is um, not exactly distinguished itself as communicators. But uh, not, not going to be taught in any schools. No. Well, maybe it will. Maybe, yes. Yeah. yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't look like a deer in the headlights and try and keep your stories straight. Those are two big rules. But, um, you know... Uh, it's the governors are under tremendous political pressure. I, I just don't think we have gotten our arms around how uh, much of a funk this country's in, and, and just how profoundly we are traumatized by what we, by what we've been through. I think years from now, people will look back and say, "Whoa, that was yes. that was a his, epically uh, catastrophic event." And you know, people have been so knocked off balance by it. And this, these masks have become emblematic. They, people just want to get on with their lives. And there's enormous pressure on these governors, some of it around the schools. I think that's an underappreciated issue uh, that Democrats are going to have to deal with. And I think they're responding. And, you know, the CDC and the government is doing what Biden said they do, which is we're going to listen to the scientists who don't have to run for anything. So there and you have the pressure. I mean, I admire them for trying to do what they think is best for the public health. And they should do that. But there are political costs to it. And you see it in the contrast with what the governors are doing. I think it's also challenging now because it doesn't feel like there's a definitive scientific consensus, even if even if you separated out the politics. Like, I think the CDC in a couple of weeks is going to be where some of these governors are. Oh, yeah. And then, then once again, the Biden their administration. Modus operandi. They're <laughs> like the, the caboose on the train. <laughs> and the Biden administration will once again feel dragged behind. Yeah. I mean, it's really problematical. And it does contribute to what I think is a larger problem for him, which is, um, you know, so much seems out of control right now. Mm. And he doesn't necessarily see in com- seem in command. And this is one of the reasons, because the administration has these mixed messages. They tend to be late. Uh, on this public health stuff. So, yeah, I mean, um, wh- wise people that uh, that you and I, uh, all of us know, uh, have said from the beginning that there should have been a one person in charge of every single bit of communication on this virus in the administration. They kind of needed a communication czar mm. for uh, just for the virus, and they didn't. And um, so there's been a lot of zigging and zagging out there. And um, it's it's contributed to a sense that, well, maybe they don't have their arms around this thing. As Dan would always say in the White House, it's not a policy problem. It's a communications yeah, look, problem. If, if we only figured out how to talk about 10% unemployment, we would have kept the House. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and like that—that that is the risk here, right? It's like There's no question the communications have contributed to the problem, but the problem is also the virus. Yeah, vi- the virus was problematic. I'm not yeah. saying that. Yeah. The whole thing was communicated. Right, right. No, no, the virus, look, the reality of the virus is we don't we don't really have control of the virus. The virus has control of us. When the virus decides to generate a new uh, a new strain, uh, then uh, it sends us back again. And um, and, you know, uh, 
it'd be great if the rest of the world were vaccinated and we, you know, because they all, all these things start in, Somewhere you know, else. Africa where 7% of the people mm-hmm. are, are vaccinated and some of the other places where people are unvaccinated. But no, you're right, Dan. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be, uh, I mean, I, I do feel the CDC thing oh, is, sure. is a little sure. bit, you know, I don't want to be hard on the White House. I mean, the mobilization behind the vaccinations was, I think, an extraordinary effort, frustrated only by politics. But, you know, hundreds of millions of Americans are vaccinated now. Otherwise, we'd be, we wouldn't be sitting here at the same table talking to each other. So Biden's going to give the State of the Union speech in a couple of weeks. This is a moment to at least try to this is going to end up probably behind these governors, but to, on a, his biggest stage, reframe this. Like, what advice would you give about how to do that? That's so interesting that you should say that because I'm, I'm, I'm working on something on this. But um, I, I th- we learned a lesson in the Obama administration, which is don't claim more progress than people are willing to tolerate. I mean, objectively, we were creating jobs. Things were getting better. But people weren't feeling that in their lives. And I do think he has to go in. There is a, you know, at his press conference on uh, January 19th on the anniversary of his, pre- uh, of, of his nom- uh, inauguration, um, th- he was very energetic about saying, we, you know, s- no, six million jobs, historic, you know, all the stuff, claiming all his credit. And then he had a little two-minute interlude where he said, yeah, but, you know, we've been through hell and all of that. And then back to the the pushing of his achievements. And you know how it is. You feel that in the White House. You say, God damn it, we've done great. We're doing, you know, in a bad situation, we've produced all this progress. Why don't people appreciate it? And if we just say it more, if we just repeat it. Axe, I feel like you and I, this was like every speech we dealt with this. Yes. Well, also because I think in in our White House, I think oftentimes, at least at the beginning, Rom wanted to really claim that's his modus operandi the accomplishments and and you were always pushing on make sure that we align with how people are feeling i always wonder like should the president be a barometer of how people are doing good or bad at all or should he be saying here's what i believe here's what i'm fighting against or here's what i'm fighting for so then he looks a little more active as opposed to narrating whether the country's doing well, poorly, somewhere in between. No, I understand. But I think it's important to acknowledge, you know, I do. I still believe what I believed back then, uh, which is you have to link up with people's experience. And I mean, I do think you have to acknowledge what we said a few minutes ago. This was a traumatic experience. This has been a traumatic experience. And there are all kinds of offshoots of it. You know, um, the mental health, mental health. Yeah, I think you obviously you recognize the lives that have been lost. Right. First and foremost, but but it goes beyond that. Look, suicides are up. uh, Violence in the home and on the streets uh, are up. Drug uh, overdoses uh, are up. Uh, People are stressed. And uh, and so, you know, and, and here's Joe Biden, whose superpower is empathy. Yeah. And I just think he needs to show some of that before he gives people confidence that here are the steps we're taking. And, you know, this is what the future is going to look like. Um, but, uh, you know, if you if you if you're hyperbolic about claiming uh, claiming successes um, in the wrong way, it can backfire on you. So my big advice to him would be square up with it where the country is. Give people their I mean, Americans have you know, soldiered through this. And there have been a lot of heroic 
people, starting with healthcare workers, by the way. Yeah. I mean, so you know, give people their their props and uh, and uh, so that you know, but resist those who will come to you and say, just tell them everything you've done, because one more no one will tell them unless you it. tell them. And if you just you have a big audience, and if you just tell them how good things are, they'll feel better and they'll give you credit. And you know, come on. It's like I thought my life was pretty shitty, but then I heard Joe Biden say we create a bunch of jobs. And right. I guess I you, feel a lot you, better. You know what? It, you know what that does? You know what that does? It makes him look out of touch. Yeah. And the thing that he least can afford is looking out of touch because that's exactly what his opponents want to say about him. Mm-hmm. That he's, you know, he's a doddering old guy who's out of touch. I mean, the fact of the matter is Biden does have a kind of I mean, I always appreciate it in the White House that he does have kind of an intuitive sense of how uh, the middle class thinks about how people, everyday people think. And I think it is a function of him having gone home uh, to Wilmington all the time. But he had a better sense of where the country was than most people in Washington. And he just needs to reconnect with that. What uh, what advice would you give to uh, House and Senate candidates running in competitive districts in this midterm election? Yeah, well, you know, um, I noticed when he went to Pennsylvania last week, a lot of people had uh, conflicts on their calendar and didn't meet him at the airport. Always a bad sign. Yeah, yeah. But uh, look, if he's sitting there at 41%, they're not necessarily going to want him around and they're not necessarily going to want to attach themselves to him. The one thing I would tell these Democratic candidates is you can try and separate yourself from the president, but it never works. I mean, you know, I mean, what you should try and do as best as possible is help him be a a success and raise those numbers because if he's at 41%, Democrats are going to get their asses kicked. If he's closer to 50, it'll be a much more competitive election. So, and right now he's sitting at 41. Yeah, we all sink or swim together on this one. Yeah, but they never believe, they never (laughs) believe, you know, candidates never believe that. I mean, it does expose politicians uh, for who they are or a lot of them. I mean, it's like, you know, it's their ass first. And, you know, thanks. Thanks for everything, Mr. President. And boom, I'm pushing you it's off the side. It's so stupid. It's like, I'm not going to get my picture taken with you. Like, are you familiar with Photoshop? You think, yes. you think those very high integrity Republican consultants are not going to put your pictures next and to And they don't other? even need Photoshop because yeah. most of them appeared with him when things were better. Right. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I don't have a lot of sympathy for those guys. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a tough spot. And this is, I mean, you know, Mike Murphy, uh, my Hacks on Tap partner, uh, said, you know, it turns out that COVID is, it kills presidents. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's very, very likely that Donald Trump got, gets reelected, but for COVID. Mm. And Joe Biden benefited from that during the election. Um, he's now paying a price for COVID because everything, including, you know, inflation is an offshoot right. of of the virus. So, you know, and that, as you guys point out, I mean, you can spin it, you can do whatever you want, but uh, the virus is the virus and the virus will do what the virus wants to do. Um, Dan and I have been talking a lot about how to frame <clears throat> the Republicans in the midterm. Like, do you talk about them as extremists? Are they out of touch? Are they in it for themselves? Like, What's your what would your frame be about the Republican Party in the midterm? Well, the question is, what is what is it that is most concerning of concerning people? I do think that um, 
I think there's a general sense that things are kind of out of control. And I think that lo- lack of control and lack of order is, is bothering people. And now you have Kevin McCarthy saying, okay, I'll tell you what our platform is. We're going to reinstate Paul Gosar. We're going <laughs> to reinstate uh, MGT, or is it MTG? Mm-hmm. And uh, we're going to throw Adam Schiff off of his committees, and we're going to and we're going to reap, reap uh, re, uh, you know, wreak vengeance on everyone who uh, is on Donald Trump's hit list, and essentially bring more chaos and less uh, cooperation to the Congress. And I, I, you know, I don't know whether this is a winning argument, but I certainly would test it mm. if I were Democrats. Is this really? Is this is what they're offering? Is that going to make you feel better? Will that be good? Yeah, uh, that's where I would be looking. I mean, you know, I know there are people who believe that you just run flat out at Trump. Saul Shore, who's you know I respect a lot and has been in the trenches for years, brilliant media consultant. He and Mandy Grunwald have this pack, and it's all about going right at Trump. I think it's an untested theory as to whether you can go at Trump in an election where he's not on the ballot and have the effect that you want, but you can tangentially weave him into it uh, if you say these guys are in his thrall and they want to bring Trumpian politics into the Congress to the, so that we'll have more chaos, more disruption, more vengeance. Yeah. You know, it requires a, a bit of nuance, which oftentimes you don't think that's the oftentimes uh, Democratic <laughs> campaign strategists don't have. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> saying calling him Glenn Trumpkin was not the nuance yeah, argument yeah, you're right. looking for. Well, I think it is the difference. I, I've said this. <laughs> it's the, I think it's the difference between the way McAuliffe handled it and the way Newsom handled it. And Newsom did not was a little more deft in California in the in, re, in the recall. In the recall, he also had a guy running who was the leading Republican candidate, Larry Elder, who. In fact, was right. He didn't need to call him a Trump clone because right. every, he, all he, of his positions seemed right. Trump-y. Now, Youngkin, you know, had an advantage because he didn't have a real primary there, and he only had to kowtow to Trump minimally. And he did a smart thing. He focused on close to the ground issues that touch people's lives. You know, everybody focuses on the critical race theory thing, but you guys are young and you have kids. I mean, probably so young. Are either of them in school yet? Preschool. Preschool. But I mean. I just don't think you can overestimate the frustration that parents ha- are f- have felt, you know, about having their kids home, missing a year of school, and then not knowing when they could go back and what will the rules be when they go back and all of that stuff. I mean, there's so many things that were really bugging people. And, of course, McAuliffe stepped into into it when he said parents shouldn't be. So let me ask you guys. The, it it's, keeps occurring to me that the right answer on all of this stuff, the school-related stuff, is, yeah, parents obviously should be involved in the education of their kids, but politicians shouldn't. Right. Oh, no, we. it's funny. We tested this. At, uh, there was a change research poll that we did, um, and we tested an argument I about- I forgot you guys are like a machine. We're yeah. a machine now. <laughs> yeah. And this was before the whole, before the Virginia election. We tested this it at the beginning. September, it was in think. September. It was in August or September, yeah. And we tested a frame that was- we don't want Republican politicians dictating what our classrooms teach our kids yeah. in Washington, just as yeah. much as we don't want. And, and it was the best testing frame. I'll tell you what, man, I still think I would be pursuing this. I mean, you have politicians like deciding what books kids can and can't read. Politicians who very likely haven't read any of them. Right. 
and don't live in your community right. and, or uh, somewhere. I mean, I think I I would definitely go there. They yeah. have, they have way overstepped. Yeah. On this one. Yeah. So I mean, you know, there's things to work with, but I mean, um, you know, I'd love. I mean, I I always am conscious of the fact that we all think we're so freaking smart, and then you test something, and it's like, you know what? That's I don't I don't think that people just fool you. I mean, they're counterintuitive. So you really got to find out. But I think there are some pretty good th- theories to yeah. pursue. I mean, it does, for me, I think it has to start with what's really bothering people and then why are we different than Republicans on right. those issues, right? I mean, we want to turn it into a choice. They wanted to make it a referendum. It's, I mean, that's sort of the basics and then right. you, of course, have to fill in all the details. I mean, there is, you know, I mean, they have stuff, they, they're very good at setting up straw men and creating caricatures to run against. Like, I don't really know. I mean, there is, you know, um, um, the representative from St. Cory uh, Bush. And mm-hmm. There are some people who are just emphatically for defunding police. Yeah. But, man, I sure don't know a whole lot of Democrats who, who, get, who, who say that. And, uh, and yet, they're, the Republicans are very disciplined about... I mean, it's, it is something that they're good at. They're good at sort of the party uh, enforcing a party line on the negative attack. You know, what they're bad at is, uh, you know, how to figure out how to keep Trump from pulling them back into constant conversations about 2020 and January 6th. Right. And, I mean, that's their curse. I mean, that's their Faustian bargain, right? Uh, they, uh, you know, they have to pledge fealty to Trump to survive in their own primary and they, in turn, you know, are incinerating themselves uh, relative to general elections because. And you can see, you know, McConnell clearly. Yeah, we were just talking about that. that. You know, um, so I, it looks like he's got. You know, every time he talks about this, it looks like he's got like agita, but he always looks like that. Yeah. So I don't know whether yeah, what to make of it. Expression. <laughs> um, so we're sitting here on the 15th anniversary of Barack Obama's presidential announcement. It took place a few hours from here in Springfield. Yeah. I was rewatching the speech since I hadn't heard it in years. And it seems like it's not just from a different political era, but like from a different universe. Like yeah. what? I do you have any opposite, reflections about that? You did? Take, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, both of you go on that. No, I don't want to get in the middle of a family fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I guess a few things struck me. Some of the same frustrations that he articulated, there are exactly the same frustrations well, that people feel today about the dis- about the things that motivate Washington, about the inability to deal with big things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those things, you know, are consistent. And you know, people say, "Well, how could people vote for Barack Obama and Donald Trump?" You know, both of them were in some ways um, assailing the status quo in Washington. I mean, I don't want to draw this too tightly because. You know, Trump's was rated uh, was uh, based in you know xenophobia and racism and all of that, but um, you know this is uh, the, the so there's a through line between that. I mean, the idea that we can overcome these things and we can bring about change and the idea of hope. I mean, somehow hope, which seems like such a wholesome and good word has been tarnished. It's like, Hope, what kind of idiot are you? You know? Uh, so, um, I, I, you know, that part seems a little sepia-colored, you know, and you, you find yourself saying, gee, were we foolish to feel that way? But I'll tell you guys something. I was over, this won't surprise you, 
But I was over yesterday at my favorite deli, Manny's, here in Chicago. <laughs> yes. And um, a guy comes up to me. I really want you guys to hear this because I hope you feel as good about it as I did. Guy comes up to me. This part you shouldn't feel good about. He was a photographer and who I'd known, and he's, he's, he's dealing with cancer. But he, he said, you know, I've been dealing with this for nine years, and I just want to come over and tell you, and I hope you share this with the president, I would be dead without the Affordable Care Act. And I have these conversations often. People come up to me about that. And it's really bracing because it kind of reminds you, we, we, you know, what this really is all about. You know, we get so wrapped up in the red team versus the blue team shit. And then you realize every once in a while you, you break through and you have a chance to do something that really will impact on people's lives in a positive way. And you know, you guys live through it how unbelievably hard that was, that fight. And, uh, you know, how, how he was the one And how close we were to losing it. And, and he, it was his determination, yeah. along with Nancy Pelosi, but his determination. I mean, I'll always remember, I don't know if either of you were in the Oval when um, uh, someone whose name I won't mention, but you I've can, gotten in trouble for doing it before, so you, uh, you go but, ahead. No, said, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe we should throw our, you know, go for something smaller or throw the two. And the president says to Phil Shalero, our legislative director, Phil, uh, what do you think the chances are of passing this thing? And uh, Phil says, um, well, it depends how lucky you feel, Mr. President. (laughs) And and the president just breaks out laughing. And he says, Phil, I'm a black guy named Barack Hussein Obama, and I'm president of the United (laughs) States. He said, I feel lucky every day. Uh, but you know, he, he refused to give in. He refused. Even knowing that it might cost him reelection. And he said it, he said, Hey, this may cost me reelection. And of course, that's why, you know, I, I, my standard speech joke is I, I loved him so much because he listened to me so little, uh, (laughs) but he, uh, but he, but that, but that made you want to run through a wall for the guy because he basically said there are bigger things than winning. Uh, an election, and it's what you do once you win. In fact, when we passed the Affordable Care Act, you guys may remember he had that party on the yep. balcony, largely because Michelle was out of town, that's and right. thought, he thought Dude, he could get away no, with it no, entirely. Yes, <laughs> and he uh, and he had he allowed himself a few martinis, which was usually a weekend thing right, for him. Right. And he came into my office the next day, and he he was like the worst for wear. <laughs> and we started talking, and he said. Um, and he said that was the the best night maybe of my that was the best night of my whole career and i said really more than more than winning the election election night that was and he said no 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 that's just the that just gets you into the game yeah. but this this is what it's really about and he really believed that and then you see that guy in manny's and you realize yeah that he's that's this is what's satisfying this is what's real so yeah, there was a, there is a kind of a, a sepia-colored quality to these talks, uh, to his, you know, almost a naive-sounding. But on the other hand, he paid off on it. Yeah, he did for sure. You no, know? I mean, my, I guess I had that reaction just because of sort of the the extremism of the Republican Party today. And you know, you can argue uh, we've had these fights forever, but it does seem like something has shifted politically, even though so much of what he said still 
so much of what he said then still rings true today you about know, the what, need what, for the country to come together. Yeah, I mean, well, let's repeat his off-stated King quote about the the uh, the arc of the moral universe mm. is long, but it bends toward justice. It's long, and right now it's not bending. Uh, but um, you know, you got to play the long game, and um, we we have to survive this period. But you know, I, I'm, we're sitting here at the University of Chicago. I work with young people all the time, uh, and um, you know, they give me they give me hope, and I, I just feel like the next turn of the wheel is going to be uh, better. What you're seeing, and Obama, I think, you know, people always ask me like, well, is this a backlash to him because he was a black man? I think that's, the, the, yes, the race is an element of this, but it's, it's more than that. He was in so many ways a symbol of change, of, cha- of a changing country, and um, became an easy kind of target as a result uh, of that, but change is coming. Yeah. Change is coming. So, um, well, and also the entire history of America has been the story of backlash to progress, whether yes. it's been racial progress or any kind of progress in this country. Right? There's progress, there's backlash, and right. then people keep fighting. It's. E- like, I think you wrote speeches like that. <laughs> it's easy. To <laughs> now you're quoting yourself. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> 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 He's quoting Barack Obama using words he wrote. <laughs> I think was more like watching that. that speech, it's easy to look and see all those people there and it's this, this incredibly diverse crowd and it feels so hopeful and think like, how is that even possible in this day and age? But it's also like watching that also sort of takes you back to how cynical politics was at that time. We were coming out of Bush mm-hmm. and the Iraq war. And yes, that was, a, that was a backlash to that. Yeah. And everything that was going on with the scandals and with the Republicans in Washington, Tom DeLay and Abramoff and all that. And then Obama was specifically pushing against that system. And obviously the make Washington work better and work with Republican stuff would not, does not play now and does not age well. Wouldn't put Dick Luger in the speech. <laughs> That's like right. did that. that. Mitt Romney is now Dick Luger. <laughs> and so, but I do like, I do think that there is still a tr- maybe even more of an appetite for that sort of, hopeful, unifying message coming out of what we're in right now. Yeah, but I, yes, it, 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 it is going to have to, it will have to adjust to the circumstances and it'll have to, it, the language may be, but the concept, look, I think democracy is, is forever a battle between cynicism and hope. Yep. Right now, cynicism is on the march, uh, but I think there are a lot of people who want to be, who, you know, who in the, secret councils, you know, of their home and stuff. They they like, man, it'd be nice not to hate everybody. Be nice not to, you know, it'd be nice to believe we can uh we can get together. And you know, I mean, I I still believe in I still believe that we do share a common humanity. I'd still believe, you know, if you don't talk about politics with someone who you know you disagree with and you talk about family or you talk about football or you talk about any number of things it's a whole different experience you know and then everybody gets tribal when you talk about politics but at the end of the day we share experiences as humans and yeah we just but you know we should also acknowledge that barack obama uh won i mean we, we you look back at that day it was fucking crazy. Yeah, what we were doing. Crazy. I mean, we were we were a bunch of insurgents, and you know, 
one of the most gra- we're going to see some of the folks who were there that day who, who we worked with on that campaign. I can't wait uh, later today. But one of the things that was so gratifying to me, I always say it was like Ocean's Eleven. You know, we just went around and said, are you in or are you out? And everybody knew there was a risk in this because I don't think the Clintons would have been that forgiving uh, if the thing had gone the wrong way. And I think uh, we would have had jobs in that uh, in that administration. (laughs) Let me just say you'd be you would have been writing Hallmark cards, my friend. (laughs) So uh, so I I, uh, and yet people came and they came because as skilled as they were at the the tools of with the tools of politics, they uh, and in the art of politics, um, they they also believe that it meant something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I mean, we had a great group. I'll say I'll probably say this later, but, um, you know, I'm, I've been watching. Did you watch that three parts? You guys are probably too too young to think about the Beatles. But I did. Did you? Yeah, yeah that's fantastic. So, yeah. So. This was this documentary that was filmed on their really their, their last their last sort of album, and you know they were sort of splintering off, and they were all going off in their own ways. But when they sat down and made music, it was it was special, it was beautiful, and they all kind of knew like that we're better together in some ways, and um, and and they were, and you know so we had this tremendous band. And everybody played their role. And everybody knew, like, I had such confidence in the people around me. Uh, And I knew that if I did what I was supposed to do and they did what they were supposed to do, and, of course, we had the great instrument uh, in Barack Obama, that we we could be the greatest band ever. And and we were. And I so I'm, you know, I want to thank everybody tonight for for taking a chance. Yeah, because we we all could have been working for Hallmark. <laughs> <laughs> uh, David Axelrod, it's always good talking politics with you. I'm, yeah, we haven't done it in a while. This it's has been fun. fun. Yeah, well, it's Thanks nice. For doing and, this. You know, you guys are an industry, so we're in, <laughs> we're just a couple I've of talking heads little, now. We're all a bunch <laughs> got, of talking heads. I'm plodding along with my tiny little podcasts and just <laughs> admiring General Motors <laughs> over here. But uh, but I'm uh, honestly, uh, I am so thrilled for all your success, both of you guys and all you guys. And um, I read you and I uh, listen to you and uh, you're, you know, you're even smarter than when I ignored you uh, in the past. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. You have been a uh, wonderful friend and mentor. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. Thanks, Axe. Thanks again to David Axelrod for joining us uh, and have a great weekend, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Hot Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner-Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Madison Hallman, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. <laughs>